when, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands that have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect of the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its power in such a form as to them shall seem most likely to affect the safety and happiness. Then what follows in this document is a long list of the abuses of the British crown against the 13 fledgling colonies of America. The colonists had come to America seeking freedom, freedom from the tyranny and the abuse of the powers of Europe, not just of Britain, but of the many European nations. And perhaps foremost among those freedoms that they sought was a freedom of religion, a freedom to worship according to the dictates of their own conscience. And for many years they did enjoy a degree of freedom. But now the power of Great Britain was recognizing the colonies as a force to be reckoned with. And they were cracking down and cutting out those freedoms that they had come to enjoy. The resistance among the colonists had reached a breaking point. We, therefore, the document continues, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, due in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are, and by of right, ought to be free and independent states. The document closes with these words. For the support of this declaration, and with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives our fortunes, and our sacred honor. July 4, 1776, a unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America, signed by 56 representatives of the colonies, or rather of the states. We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our honor. And this they did. Now, people can write words on paper all they like, and those words may mean little. But in pledging their lives to defend the liberty they sought, the signers of this Declaration of Independence, they were bringing upon themselves, and they knew it, the might of the armies of the loyalists 
and of Great Britain. And these armies unleashed all their fury on the colonies. True, the war had already begun, but it increased and multiplied in its intensity. Battle after battle was fought. Sometimes the British would win and the Patriots would suffer heavy losses. Other times the Patriots would win and the British would suffer the losses. This was 1776. The war dragged on. And by the summer of 1780, four years later, it looked like the British were gaining the upper hand in the southern colonies. The Patriots had suffered a string of defeats in the Carolinas and appeared as though perhaps they would fall soon into the hands of the British. Charleston had already fallen to General Cornwallis of the British armies. And after the defeat at Charleston, one of Cornwallis' officers, by the name of Patrick Ferguson, encountered a band of 400 wild-looking settlers who'd come from the West, who'd come too late to try and defend Charleston. Now, Ferguson was pretty upset at these wild-haired, buckskin-wearing settlers who'd come over the mountains to challenge him. And he sent them, not long after, a stern warning. You had better stop fighting these British, or else I'll come over the mountains and I'll burn you out. Little did Ferguson know what kind of men he had stirred up by this threat. These were men who had immigrated into the frontiers of East Tennessee from the other colonies. These were, these were men of a rugged character. These were men, unlike the gentler brethren in the eastern colonies, who had learned what it took to survive up in the hills and hollers of Appalachia. These men had braved cold and heat. They had worked hard. They had struggled against famine to subsist in the harsh but grand mountains of the interior. The mountain life had isolated them from their fellow countrymen, but it hadn't dulled their sense of duty. It had hardened their physical features. It had sharpened their skills. You couldn't survive in these woods if you weren't a good marksman. If anything, the rugged life had only increased their patriotism. It had increased their loyalty for Ken and for country. And the frontiersmen of Kentucky and Tennessee took that threat of Ferguson as a challenge. When Isaac Shelby received the message from Ferguson, he immediately rode to the friend of, to the home of his friend, John Sevier. The two of them quickly began rounding up a militia. There were only about 3,000 settlers here in the area of Kentucky and Tennessee, but the militia soon grew to number almost 1,500 men, nearly half of the population. Every able-bodied man had joined this militia under the command of Sevier and Shelby. They set out on a rapid march across the mountains to meet Ferguson with force. Now, General Ferguson, he hadn't expected such a response. And when he heard of this band of men from the western hills streaming over the Blue Ridge Mountains like a swarm of angry hornets, he beat a hasty retreat. He ended up entrenching himself and his army on the top of a hill in King's Mountain on the border of South, North and South Carolina. And the stage was set. October 7, 1780. And the Patriots, under the command of Severe and Shelby, 
and the generals that they had rounded up in their, in their militia soon besieged this mountain and surrounded Ferguson's armies on all sides. As Ferguson and his men would push down the mountain on one side, trying to push back the patriots, the patriots behind them on the other side would creep further up the mountain. Then they would turn and try to drive the patriots back down the other side, and the ones they had just pushed down on the first side came running back up after them, behind them. Soon they were, they were crowded in on all sides, at the very crest of the hill, and the patriots mowed down Ferguson and his army. Ferguson was killed. His army was, was decimated. The patriots took the loyalist armies captive. The victory won on King's Mountain turned the tide of the American War of Independence. Cornwallis himself was on the verge of invading Virginia, but when he heard the news of his defeat on King's Mountain, he beat a hasty retreat. The following year, Cornwallis himself surrendered at Yorktown, Virginia on October 19. After the battle at King's Mountain, some of the mountaineers joined the other Patriot forces, but most returned back to their homes on the other side of the mountains. Isaac Shelby had settled in what is now the state of Kentucky, and in 1792 he would become the first governor of the state. John Sevier would go on to become the first governor of Tennessee in 1796. You know, I have to wonder, what would the outcome of the Revolutionary War, what would the outcome have been had it not been for the swift action of these two rugged men and their cohorts from the mountains? Do you suppose that the battles of the American Revolution were just the outcome of happenstance? You know, it's been said that the victor writes the history. You ever wonder why we always look back at the Revolutionary War, the American War of Independence with such pride? And then we look at the at the cessation of the southern states in the 1860s with kind of a, a tone of disgust? Well, maybe it's because the victors write the history, right? We won this war, so we wrote, it's grand. We, they lost that war, so, wow, that was, they were rebels, right? We were rebels too, right? In a way, declared treason against the British government. Is, is it just that the victor writes the history? Or do you suppose there's more to these historical stories than meets the eye? Do you suppose, and I can't help but wonder, in the turning of events of history, that there is a divine hand that is guiding the outcomes of these battles. If you turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 2 and verse 20, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. Daniel is praying. 21. And he changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. In studying the words of the prophecies of this book, the Bible, we see traced thousands of years in advance sometimes the outworking of history. Beforehand, before anyone ever knew, God saw the events that would take place. And his hand has guided those events to protect and shelter 
his people and to work out his purposes in the history of men. In studying the pages of this book of prophecy in Daniel, we see a period of 1,260 years of persecution that would come upon God's people. And in overlying that with the events of history that we've already seen, we see that that period of persecution came to a close in the late 18th century. In Daniel chapter 7, we read of a succession of kingdoms, the stunning description right in the middle of a judgment scene in heaven. And if you're turning there, I won't take time to read it all, but you see it here in verses 9 and 10, then you see 11 and 12 going back to the to the beasts, and verses 13 through 14, again, this judgment scene in heaven. Now, if you, if you compare the, the events that are happening in symbol, symbolized by these beasts, if you compare that time in history, we see that this great judgment scene in heaven comes at a time in history when a great person persecuting power is destroyed and world dominion is taken away from the other beasts, although their lives are prolonged. Right at this time in history, a heavenly judgment takes place. Do you suppose that it's any chance that the United States came into world power at the turn of the 19th century? Do you suppose, rather, that God's hand providentially orchestrated a nation where we could enjoy a degree of freedom unknown hitherto, where God's people could study his word and find the prophecies of his soon coming and declare the message of a soon coming Savior, Jesus coming again in the clouds of heaven and discover this beautiful truth of the heavenly judgment that is going on right now. Friends, I believe that it's by no accident that we are here. And it is thanks not only to the founding fathers and to the blood that they shed and the sacrifices that they made, but it is thanks to a God in heaven who overrules, who sets up kings, and who takes down kings. My friends, I believe if we could pull back the curtains of heaven, we could see angels time and again working behind the scenes to guide in the course of history. Now I could go on and tell you of the wonderful and tragic history of the people of these mountains of eastern Kentucky. I could tell you of the generations of strong men and women who immigrated here from Scotland, Ireland, and Germany. My name, by the way, is Scotch-Irish. Some of my own ancestors were born in Kentucky, although I don't have a lot of claim in that regard, but I do have a great-grandfather. I'm not sure how many greats goes back um, a great-grandfather who was born here in Kentucky. I could tell you of the countless heroic soldiers who grew up in these hills and fought in every war that this nation has been engaged in. Heroes like Desmond Doss, who was born in the foothills of the Appalachians in Virginia, who rescued 75 men when he should have been killed under heavy gunfire. Heroes like Wilburn K. Ross, who was born right here in McCrory County, who single-handedly during World War II, single-handedly held back the enemy after his regiment had run out of ammunition. 
Friends, I could tell you of men and boys who worked their lives in the coal mines here. I could tell you of countless families who eked out their lives living on what they could grow in the rocky soil of these ridges. My friends, I don't have to tell you about life here in the mountains today. It's not like it used to be. No, we no longer dig the coal out of the mountains with pick and shovel. We don't traverse these winding roads on foot or jolting in horse-drawn carts. No longer do our possessions consist merely in the things that we can grow from the rocky ground. But still, I tell you, friends, and you you know this as well as I do, many of us have it hard. We're among the last to see developments that come to our nation. Our schools struggle. The levels of poverty in in our part of Kentucky are staggering. Industries who could provide the desperately needed jobs come here and look at the infrastructure, and they move on. Those that do stay, often like the coal and lumber companies of bygone years, stay to exploit the cheap labor and to strip the land of its natural resources and plunge our communities deeper into poverty. Not only do our communities face an economic and social crisis, but we're facing one of the worst crises now in history with an epidemic of opioid abuse and of every other kind of drug that goes with it. Who do we blame? We point our fingers at our pharmaceutical companies. We point our fingers at greedy doctors who are overprescribing drugs. We point our fingers at the whole web of poverty that is, that is leading people into desperate situations. We point our fingers in every direction. Maybe it's all right. Where do we go? Where do we go for answers? My brothers and sisters, I want to ask you today, which of you will stand as a hero of the mountains? Like John Severe, like Isaac Shelby, like Desmond Doss. Which of you will stand as a hero of the mountains today? My friends, the signers of the Declaration of Independence didn't believe in idle talk. These men were willing to die for the belief that all men are created equal. They were willing to die so you and I can enjoy the liberties that we have today. Must we, my friends, like our founding fathers, take up arms against the abuses and oppression of society? No, my friends, this is not a call to arms today. This is a call to use our hands and our feet, our ears and our eyes. Friends, I believe we must take a stand against abuse and oppression. I don't believe we must take up arms, but I believe we must do everything in our power to relieve the suffering that we find in our fellow man, just as Christ did. Do we, like the heroes of the revolution, identify ourselves with those who are suffering all around us? My friends, we need heroes of the mountains, heroes to take the love of Jesus to a world in need. I believe, my friends, that there is an even greater battle to be fought than the battle of the American Revolution. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 5, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. My friends, this world is a battlefield. 
We've been taken hostage by the forces of Satan. But my friends, a man, a hero, like no other hero has ever lived, the Son of God himself, Jesus Christ, came to this world to redeem you and me. And because of his blood, I can declare my independence from Satan's kingdom. We hold these truths to be evident from the word of God that men and women were created in the image of God. And not only that, but you and I have been redeemed by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. I am no longer subject to the dominion of Satan, no longer under the power of sin. I can live in this world, but not be of this world. Friends, we need heroes in these mountains. Heroes who are prepared to fight in a spiritual battle that's going on all around us. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. Turn with me to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6. I'll be reading a few verses here. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. Verse 10. And in the power of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication of the saints. My friends, in this warfare that is before us, let us put on the armor of God. My friends, this isn't all just pie in the sky. Even though it is a spiritual war, there's a physical component to it. And we must be ready to stand. My friends, you know as well as I do that this battle is perhaps the most intense that is ever fought. More intense than any fought on Earth's battlefields. My question for you today is this, my friends. Which of you will be among today's generation of heroes? Heroes who will stand on the mountains like Elijah, standing on Mount Carmel, though all others are bowing the knee to Baal. Heroes like Caleb. You know the story of Caleb. Caleb was one of the two spies who went into the land of Canaan. He and Joshua. And after the wilderness wanderings, he came back at the age of 85. And he says to Joshua, the Lord promised us this land. Give me this mountain. The mountain was filled with Canaanites. Give me this mountain. The Lord's promised me I'm going to take this mountain. My friends, we live in mountains all around us. How many of you have prayed to God? God, give me this mountain for you and for your kingdom. Friends, this world has plenty of wimps. I want to know how many of you is a hero. One of my favorite authors, a woman by the name of Alan G. White, wrote these words. The greatest want of the world is the want 
of men. We can say that in the language that's changed since then and now, men and women. The greatest want of the world is the want of men who will not be bought or sold. Men who in their inmost souls are true and honest. Men who do not fear to call sin by its right name. Men whose conscience is as true to duty as the needle to the pole. Men who will stand for the right though the heavens fall. Friends, we need more heroes. Heroes like Gideon, who with his band, though his band numbered only 300 men, by the grace of God and through faith in God, conquered the Midianite armies. Heroes like Joseph, who will stand for purity in a land of lust and licentiousness. Heroes like Daniel, who will stand for the right, come what may. My friends, this world will not continue forever as it is now. If I read my Bible correctly, Jesus is coming soon in the clouds of heaven to take us home. We're living now in a time unlike any other time in history, a time of the heavenly judgment. And Jesus is coming not as a babe, not coming just spiritually in our hearts. He's coming literally in the clouds of heaven. In the book of Revelation, chapter 14, we read of Jesus standing as a lamb on a mountain, on Mount Zion, with 144,000 having their father's name written in their foreheads and following him wherever he goes. Heroes, if you will, heroes of the mountain following our great leader. Men and women standing for the right who have not defiled themselves with the things of this world. My friends, which of us will be able to say with Paul, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. My friends, I ask you once again, which of you will stand and say, God, I want to be your hero today? I'm not just saying metaphorically. If that is your prayer, I want to invite you to stand right now. God, use me today. Not just when all my friends are going, but may I stand with you when the going gets tough and stand for the right though the heavens fall. Our loving Father in heaven, Lord, your truth goes marching on. Lord, we've seen the example of those who have gone before us who have laid down their lives, who have laid down their their families, their belongings, everything they have or ever will be for the cause of freedom and for the cause of country. And Lord, we stand here today committing ourselves whether to live or to die for your honor, to be heroes in your cause under the leader of our great Redeemer, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Bless us now that we may fulfill this commitment that we are making today is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.